I wanted to start with a couple explanatory comments about the title of my talk, Christian Humanism in Modern Literature. First, let's consider the word humanism. Although it was the Renaissance that coined the term humanist in reference to scholars of Greek and Latin, the term Renaissance humanism was coined no earlier than the 19th century. Renaissance humanists didn't originally think of themselves as Renaissance humanists. The term Christian humanism in particular is a convenience of scholarship. Erasmus never used it, though we certainly think of Erasmus as a Christian humanist. To insist on a single definition of Christian humanism would cost us more than we would gain by it. It would be like viewing the subject through a pinhole. What I have to say on the subject is therefore descriptive, not definitional. But I think description can be an adequate guide. What then about the other part of my title, the seemingly self-evident phrase, modern literature? Under the heading of modern literature, one could include the great authors of the Renaissance, all of whom lived in a modern Christian world. I note that with respect to the great expanse of modern literature, academic specialists refer to the Renaissance as the early modern period. It follows that our notion of the modern is not always the same as our notion of the contemporary. Shakespeare, by the way, liked the word modern. For him, it referred to the present day. But I don't think he connected it to secularism as our contemporary scholars of the early modern period tend to do. Whatever the ambiguities of the phrase modern literature, I suspect your interest in the topic is in the more recent chapters of literary history. That seems reasonable. And so I'd like to begin in the 19th century with the great Victorian writer, John Henry Cardinal Newman, who was canonized by Pope Francis in 2019. I will, however, hazard a few remarks now and then about the more distant past. As it happens, my conception of Christian humanism is of a living tradition that connects the past to the present. In the idea of a university written in 1852 for the new Catholic University of Ireland, Newman lays out his plan for an ideal university. He begins by establishing the university's relative independence from two powers in society, one, the church, and two, the academies. By the academies, he refers to various royal societies and the like, institutions somewhat akin to our graduate schools, where specialists in science and literature advance their mostly secular work. In other words, Newman situated the university between opposing and competing forces. If we can imagine a dialectical opening between the sacred and the secular, it is in that opening where Newman's ideal university exists. In my own work, I use the phrase, the radical middle, to describe this uniquely Christian cultural site poised between the church and the academies, between the sacred and the secular, and yet in dialogue with both. A Christian author who occupies the radical middle is, in my view, a Christian humanist. Those of you who know Newman may recall that he was an adamant champion of great literature. He didn't judge a book according to whether the author was Protestant or Catholic, classical or modern, religious or not. He thought great literature essential 
for a modern education and preparing students for life in the real world. I want to suggest that these readers of great literature also belong in the radical middle. So far then, we have placed Newman's ideal university in the radical middle, that is in the dialectical opening between the sacred and the secular where Christian humanism can flourish. Likewise, we have placed Christian readers of great literature in the radical middle. That is my first borrowing from Newman. My second borrowing from Newman helps to support and clarify this effort. Newman was highly conscious of history. His historical consciousness pervades not only his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, but also his splendid lectures on literature. Given that Newman was both a theologian and a man of letters, it is unsurprising that his awareness of church history infuses his thought on literature as a historical phenomenon. Newman was not the type of Catholic to be locked in the past. He was the first Catholic intellectual to fully digest the Enlightenment. Like Erasmus, he placed the humanist commitment to education on a Christian basis. As you can see, I am attracted to Newman's consciousness of history, which informs his understanding both of church history and of literature. In this respect, one may speak of Newman's sensibility. In other words, his intellectual and artistic judgment, his tastes, his distaste, his individual angle on experience. I suggest that Christian humanism is characterized by Newman's type of sensibility, which assimilates the theological, the literary, and the historical to its own creative and critical endeavors. To diagram the workings of a Christian humanist sensibility, we can say the following. Literature and history prevent theology from becoming entirely systematic. And theology prevents literature and history from wandering off into the secular desert. A Christian humanist can feel complete respect for St. Augustine or for St. Thomas, but will approach these great figures from a historical perspective that is not devoted entirely to theology. We need our thoroughgoing Thomists. They have much to teach us. I can think of no better ethicist than Aquinas. But the Christian humanist must also contend with Homer and Plato, with Erasmus and Luther, with Shakespeare and Milton, with Kant and Nietzsche, with the Eliot of the Wasteland and the Beckett of Waiting for Godot. One must not only contend with these geniuses, one must appreciate them, compare and analyze their works, and if need be, bring these works into the classroom. Through my second borrowing from Newman, I have, if you will, established a particular link between literature and religion. This link is a kind of Christian sensibility, which again, distinguishes the radical middle. Before returning to the story of Christian humanism in modern literature, I would like to leap briefly into the present moment and ask, how is this Christian humanist sensibility to flourish in the world of 2021? What is it good for? Why be a Christian humanist? The church in its normal everyday operations has no urgent need for philosophers and poets. It is thankfully the home of the Christian faith. The secular powers on the other hand are apt to promote politics at the expense of the arts of civilization. Politics promises fast results. The arts of civilization are what you might call a long-term deal. In the church, masses must be celebrated and sacraments must be administered. 
good works must be done. In the secular world, the media are essentially political, while university professors are widely engaged in political activism that is destructive of the liberal arts. Looking at this division of labor between service and education, we think it doomed to failure. We need educated nuns and priests, not ecclesiastical machines. We need educated lay people, not brainwashed followers. In terms of education, one possible solution known in the history of the church as Erastianism is for the church and the state to fuse. Another solution is Rod Dreher's Benedict option, which calls for school church integration. I note that Dreher's school church integration is radically different from Newman's model, which as we have seen, carefully separates the work of the university from the work of the church. The Jesuits <clears throat> offer a third solution with their ideal of being active contemplatives in the world. But the Jesuits, despite some wonderful successes, are a dwindling order. Possibly their emphasis on social justice has come at too high a spiritual cost. It is extremely difficult to devote oneself to social justice while staying grounded in the church. The Dominicans, a medieval order, are doing the kind of work with their Thomistic Institute that the Jesuits have evidently forsaken as a relic of the past. Unless we want to endorse Erastianism or subscribe to the Benedict Options Plan for school church integration, or can find hopeful signs of a Jesuit rebirth, or expect the Dominicans to do all the work, we must, include, we must conclude that some type of intermediary is needed if the church and the state are not going to face off in warlike opposition. Unfortunately, in an increasingly secular environment, Newman's idea of education has few defenders. In curricular discussions, Newman is regarded as an intellectual fossil, but this neglect is open to challenge. There is something phony about it, as if the vast religious life of humankind could be canceled like a Twitter account, as if religion complying to the wishes of its enemies were already extinct and not an active force in Western society. This short-sightedness on the part of the policy community leaves an opening for Christian humanism. Increasingly, it falls to the Christian humanists to keep Newman's educational program alive. This means, if you will pardon my insistence, that our last best hope for keeping Western culture and our literary tradition alive is the radical middle where a Christian humanist sensibility can thrive. But still, what can the Christian humanist bring to the table that people want? What negotiating power do we have? What cards to play? By what means can we bring church and state into a more fruitful dialogue? The answer lies in the power of literature and the arts to command the respect of serious people. And the first sign of our seriousness has to be our willingness to judge books on the basis of their quality and not because of politics or religion. For instance, we may not like what the famous historian Edward Gibbon had to say. I don't think that Newman at all liked what Gibbon had to say but the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is worth our time. Bear in mind our situation. We know the media has an agenda and that facts can go to hell. We know that colleges and universities fail to protect the free exchange of ideas. And we know that this situation is not healthy. I'm therefore suggesting that Christian humanism can supply an opening for real culture that resists the political mandate. On the other hand, if we demand that Christian literature be devotional, a slave to theology, 
a celebrant of blank virtue and all the noble lies that a smug and vicious respectability can manufacture, we won't get anywhere. We will simply retreat into irrelevance. As I've suggested, Newman did not prize Catholic literature because it was Catholic. He would never have endorsed a Catholic writer for being Catholic. Such endorsements are a pretentious trap. Bishops can blurb books to be sure, but few are qualified literary critics. To quote Flannery O'Connor, the fact would seem to be that for many writers, it is easier to assume universal responsibility for souls than it is to produce a work of art. And it is considered better to save the world than to save the work. Christian humanism can tolerate bad authors with good intentions no more than it can tolerate anti-Catholic bigotry. O'Connor quotes a bigot named Philip Wiley. Quote, this is O'Connor now, Flannery O'Connor. A Catholic, if he is devout, that is, sold on the authority of his church, is also brainwashed whether he realized it or not. O'Connor adds to that remark by Philip Wiley and consequently does not have the freedom necessary to be a first-rate creative writer. The Philip Wileys of the world continue as a presence on the American literary scene. One of them writes under the name of William Giraldi, a Boston University writing teacher, the next Catholic whose 2015 essay in the New Republic entitled Confessions of a Catholic Novelist is a heated compost of anti-Catholic sentiments. Giraldi may be vindicated though in the world of cultural warfare by the Catholic habit of endorsing Catholic writers simply because they are Catholic. It's a bit like selling Catholic dog food, isn't it? Newman's sensibility, which I take to be archetypal for modern Christian humanism, leads us in a direction that is less embarrassing and less provincial. If Christian humanism has a continuing role to play in the custodianship of culture, it will be helpful to look for inspiration to Newman and to the intellectuals and writers who followed him. Consider the case of T.S. Eliot, who embraced both Christianity and humanism after a brief youthful period leading the literary avant-garde, not unlike Harpo Marx leading the marching band into somebody's wall. It is really Newman who stands behind the most influential literary essay of the 20th century, Eliot's tradition and the individual talent. When a young man, Eliot taught Newman as a university extension lecturer during the First World War. He knew Newman's work well, and he continued to return to it over the years. I'm going to read four brief passages from Newman's idea of a university, followed by one longer excerpt from Eliot's tradition and the individual talent. At issue is the role of Christian humanism in modern literature and education from Newman's time to our own. I think you'll see the relationship between the two writers immediately. First, Newman defines the activity and knowledge of a truly great intellect, such as the intellect of Aristotle or of St. Thomas or of Newton or of Goethe as one which takes a connected view of old and new, past and present, far and near, and which has an insight into the influence of all these on one another, without which there is no whole, no center. It possesses the knowledge not only of things, but of their mutual and true relations. My second passage from Newman concerns the benefits of education. True enlargement of mind is the power of viewing many things at once as one whole, of referring them severally to their true place in the universal system, of understanding their respective values and determining their mutual dependence. 
Newman proceeds then to comment on the human mind in this condition of enlargement or health. It has almost the beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation. So intimate is it with the eternal order of things. And our fourth and last passage from Newman, at university colleges, students will give birth to a living teaching, which in course of time will take the shape of a self-perpetuating tradition, which haunts the home where it has been born and which imbues and forms more or less and one by one, every individual who is successively brought under its shadow. We can turn now to Eliot, bear in mind that when Eliot in the following passage refers to monuments, he is actually talking about the great books as cultural monuments. Here's Eliot. The existing monuments form an ideal order among themselves, which is modified by the introduction of the new, the really new work of art among them. The existing order is complete before the new work arrives. For order to persist after the supervention of novelty, the whole existing order must be if ever so slightly altered, and so the relations, proportions, values of each work of art toward the whole are readjusted. And this is conformity between the old and the new. Whoever has approached this idea of order, of the form of European, of English literature, will not find it preposterous that the past should be altered by the present as much as the present is directed by the past. Alongside tradition, individual, and living, the key words connecting Eliot to Newman are relations, proportion, values, whole, the old, the new, and order. From Newman, Eliot gleans all the rudiments of his influential theory of literary history and what he calls tradition. By way of Newman, Eliot learns how to achieve a living perspective on the past as opposed to locking himself securely within its borders or mindlessly repeating the judgments of the great. The difference, however, is that Newman's underpinnings are Catholic which is to say they are permanent. Eliot, at this point in his career, he wrote Tradition and the Individual Talent in 1917, has no underpinnings. He is simply a pragmatist of genius. His theory is parasitic on metaphysics and theology. Eliot did not convert to the Church of England until 1927. By that time, he understood what was at stake in the custodianship of culture. He had become a Christian humanist. The constant lesson of history is that things change. Once upon a time, Eliot was highly influential. Back in the 1930s, the new academic discipline of English took authority and prestige from his example. To teach Eliot was a serious intellectual undertaking, recognized and appreciated by the broad spectrum of American society. Countless thousands of undergraduates read tradition and the individual talent alongside other major works of Western literature on their syllabi. But let us consider the fate of Eliot's essay in our own day. A hundred years after Eliot's tradition and the individual talent, what the contemporary novelist Glenn Arbery calls, quote, the unfolding devastations of the modern project, unquote, have pretty much unfolded. Western civilization has collapsed to the point where its central role in colleges and universities is to provide examples of evil, of systematic oppression, of all that is wrong with the world. It exists to be unmasked and debunked by professionals who are especially trained to expose as a vicious lie everything civilized people once believed in. The literary tradition in Eliot's sympathetic sense is receding into the historical distance. This gutting of our civilization, which many have addressed, explains why Eliot's idea of tradition no longer serves to anchor and secure our literary heritage. 
Elliott's critical authority collapsed decades ago, beginning in the 1960s, as the now dominant secularism gathered steam. By the time of Elliott's death in 1965, the last renaissance of Christian literature was in its twilight. One thinks of Elliott, Dorothy Sayers, Auden, County Cullen, Graham Greene, C.S. Lewis, Flannery O'Connor, J.F. Powers, Muriel Spark, J.R.R. Tolkien, John Kennedy Toole, Evelyn Waugh, and many others of note who made a Christian culture come to life, even among the university presses, even in the New York publishing industry. Whether you were Virginia Woolf or Samuel Beckett, Robert Hayden or Shirley Jackson, Bernard Malamud or Raymond Chandler, this culture was good for your work because it reinforced the appreciation of high achievement. It stood as a bulwark against the now dominant practice of reducing art to ideology. I think our current situation is simply this. The secularists and the ideologues have won the culture's commanding heights, but they have conquered at the expense of literature. With few exceptions, they have no credibility as poets, novelists, and critics. A writer like Colson Whitehead, showered with prizes, the darling of Times literary critic Chico Kakatani, is a political writer with a literary skill set. His individuality, and bear in mind that Newman and Eliot place great emphasis on individuality, is an eerie reflection of the authoritarian left. He is, in this respect, as far removed from the genius of Emily Dickinson as is possible. Emily Dickinson, arguably America's greatest poet, steeped in the Calvinism of her youth, stuck to her guns. Was she a Christian humanist? I don't think so. She doesn't show the interest in human history. In history. On the other hand, I think that only Christian humanism can carry her into the future. I return again to Newman, whose fertility as a man of letters is hard to overappreciate. We've considered how Newman's sensibility connects his work in theology to his work in literature. There is another important connection between the two fields, a connection that has slipped through the cracks. It was Newman who commented in his idea of a university that theology is the secret assumption too axiomatic to be distinctly professed of all our writers. It's curious, and here I venture one of my backward leaps in time, that in Shakespeare's day, this assumption was no secret. The Elizabethans did not make a textbook distinction between literature and religion. The distinguished English scholar, Brian Cummings has remarked, literature in its modern sense is not a useful term in the Elizabethan and Jacobean period. Cummings cites Sir Philip Sidney's apology for poetry, in support of his position. It is certainly a text where literature and theology overlap, where the conspicuous assumption is that literature and theology are joined at the hip. Christian humanism as a generic label applies to Sidney's apology as it does to epics by Spencer and Milton. These works, if we take them seriously, force us to contemplate the close relationship between literature and theology. And though I do not view this relationship as one of slave and master, I nonetheless view it as indispensable to our efforts. Newman is only one of a few post-Enlightenment writers to have focused on the theological dimension of literature with the rigor of the Elizabethans. Samuel Taylor Coleridge is such another, and Coleridge was a definite influence on Newman. A third is Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Probably the greatest theological burden shared by this trio of luminaries, I'm speaking of Coleridge and Newman and Chesterton, is the problem of free will. It is a problem that haunts us today. It haunts our legal system as well as our literature. It was the central theological problem of the Reformation 
and its aftermath. Erasmus and Luther debated the issue in the 1520s and Shakespeare wrote about it in Hamlet. It takes no prophetic talent to see that the forgetting of theology is bad for culture, though we should not underestimate the appeal of cultural disasters. This lapsing into theological unconsciousness is dehumanizing, a dehumanizing loss of self-knowledge and the conversion of ourselves and our neighbors into robots in somebody's five-year plan. So what I'm saying there again is that this loss of the knowledge of theology, the loss of it as a discipline, the loss of the sense of its connection to literature is very bad, it's a disaster for our culture, and it contributes to the dehumanizing of our society. Though I've suggested that Newman's insight that theology is the secret assumption too axiomatic to be distinctly professed, of all our writers has fallen on deaf ears, I should acknowledge that theology made a short-lived literary comeback in the mid 20th century. As Anthony Domestico has shown, this brief shining moment owed much uh, to, uh, to uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, Karl Barth, and Jacques Maritain, who benefited from the receptivity that Eliot created among readers of the English language. But with specific regard to the role of Christian humanism in modern literature, it is Chesterton especially who reflects Newman's insights and who holds the most promise for a new Catholic renaissance in the arts. Some of you will know Chesterton from his novels and his father Brown stories. My favorite of his novels is The Man Who Was Thursday, a fantastic tale written in reaction against the pessimism of Arthur Schopenhauer, who was fashionable at the time. I also bear special affection and gratitude for The Flying Inn, which fearlessly examines the artistic boundaries between Christianity and Islam. These novels bear the hallmarks of Chesterton's great apologetic writings, in particular Heretics, 1905, and Orthodoxy, 1908. In this respect, they are novels shaped by theology, imaginatively rendered, non-systematic, reducible to no one school of figure, but theological nonetheless. Chesterton's historical consciousness is particularly evident in the flying in as well as in his later work of apologetics, The Everlasting Man, published in 1925, a few years after he became a Catholic. C.S. Lewis said that it baptized his intellect. I suspect that The Everlasting Man also influenced The Lord of the Rings, particularly in its brilliantly imagined rendering of the struggle between Rome and Carthage, anticipating the great war of Tolkien's third age. Chesterton, I note, was also a gifted poet and a superb literary critic who knew what he was about and could defend it on the basis of his assumptions and prejudices. He inspired not only Lewis and Tolkien, but also our contemporary, the Catholic philosopher Alistair McIntyre, author of After Virtue. Years ago, by the way, I was in the company of Jeff Lecker. I think Jim Key might have been there, I can't recall. Um, years ago, by the way, I learned that the cleaning woman in the house of the young McIntyre had previously worked for the Chestertons. McIntyre told me so himself. I suspect that a fascinating essay could be written on McIntyre's debt to heretics and orthodoxy. During his lifetime, Chesterton was often paired with his friend Hilaire Belloc, so that George Bernard Shaw rather mischievously coined the term Chester Belloc. To be honest, I find Chesterton superior. He is funnier, more psychologically nuanced and penetrating, more intelligent about men and women than his friend Belloc, a writer whom one can admire without any special attachment. Chesterton, on the other hand, keeps making friends long after his death. In the four short passages I'll read from Chesterton, you'll hear the impact of Newman's sensibility 
combining as it does theology, literature, and history. So four brief passages. When Thomas Aquinas asserted the spiritual liberty of man, he created all the bad novels in the circulating libraries. A man has control over many things in his life. He has control over enough things to be the hero of a novel. The truth is that Western theology that dethrones tyrants has been directly due to the Western theology that says, I am I, thou art thou. And a final brief passage concerning the historic councils. A sentence phrased wrong about the nature of symbolism would have broken all the best statues in Europe. As you can see, Chesterton's characteristic is to identify the crucial role of theology in Western culture in the creation of Western culture. This is why I once called him the most gifted defender of Christian humanism since Erasmus. I do not say that Chesterton was, Chesterton was a greater figure than Newman or more supremely indispensable, but Newman emerged out of the Oxford movement. His job was to defend the intellectual integrity of Catholicism, its dogmas, councils, and traditional ways against the enlightenment and its skeptical force of mind, a skeptical force to which he attached the label which Newman attached the label liberalism. Chesterton, who long thought of himself as a liberal, extended Newman's type of sensibility to an emphasis on a specifically Christian creative power in the arts, an emphasis that Coleridge and Eliot likewise expressed. This Christian claim on culture remains controversial. It is not easily assigned to the dustbin of history. Chesterton's unique and profound pairing of theology, theology of free will and culture, fuels the literary essays and heretics on such major figures as Kipling, Shaw, H.G. Wells, Nietzsche, and Tolstoy. These essays go to the heart of the matter, or called heretics, in ways that Eliot's early essays do not. The pre-conversion Eliot, and now I am extending my comparisons, is brilliant on purely literary grounds. Nothing is superior in purely literary terms to Eliot's essays on Marlowe, Johnson, the metaphysical poets, Blake, Swinburne, Dante, and others. Eliot in this respect was the heir to another great poet critic, Matthew Arnold. But after snubbing Chesterton early on, Eliot pretty much followed him while rejecting the example of Arnold into the realm of Christianity and culture. So I just wanna emphasize Chesterton brings to the table the sense of how Christianity contributes to the fecundity of the arts, that there is a specific a creative power, which he links to free will, which he links to the disciplines of the councils that gives us the great art of Europe. So again, that, that, that bond between the creative activity of the arts and our cultural history is established best by Chesterton. The West has frittered away its Christian cultural capital, like a slow bloodletting, especially since the so-called enlightenment, an enlightenment that had a dark side to say the least. A number of key chapters in our cultural history have helped to clarify precisely what is at stake in this erosion of our Christian patrimony. I have one such key chapter in mind, one that will allow us to enjoy the privilege of Eliot's company just a little longer. Lecturing at Harvard in the early 1930s, Eliot aimed some tough words at the secular humanist worldview. By this time in his life, Eliot was Christian, broadly tolerant of secular humanism, though he found it sterile, his word, and thin. Eliot's whipping boy on this occasion was the literary critic I.A. Richards, another critical heir of Matthew Arnold. Richards, 
took Arnold's post-Christian consolation prize, that the future of poetry is immense. That's a famous quotation from Arnold, the future of poetry is immense. And molded and refashioned it into the grand statement that poetry is capable of saving us. That's I.A. Richards saying that poetry is capable of saving us, not something that Monsignor uh, Moroni is known to preach from his pulpit, I must say. Uh, in his withering attack on Richards, Eliot quoted the theologian Jacques Maritain. Here's Maritain quote, by showing us where moral truth and the genuine supernatural are situated. Religion saves poetry from the absurdity of believing itself destined to transform ethics and life, saves it from overweening arrogance. So for the Christian Eliot, it is not poetry that saves us, but Christianity that saves poetry. I think that is exactly right. We can see that by the 1930s, Eliot stood in the Christian humanist tradition of Newman and Chesterton. Eliot knew that Richard's, I.A. Richard's secular humanism lacked the strength to endure. Richards had inherited it, as I've noted, from Matthew Arnold, who sought to adapt Newman's ideas to a world that was, in Arnold's opinion, evolving, changing, migrating skeptically away from the supernatural foundations of faith that Newman had defended. When Eliot spoke at Harvard in the early 1930s, the ideas of Arnold and Richards were in the ascent at Harvard, at Oxford, and throughout the academies. It is true that those ideas were parasitic on Christian culture, but the followers of Arnold and Richards considered themselves to be on the right track. They were scientific, clear-sighted, and thoroughly modern. Then came the great dose of clarity for Eliot and for his entire culture. It happened in 1938, when Nazi Germany annexed Austria in violation of the Treaty of Versailles, a year before the Nazi invasion of Poland drew England and France into war. I would like to read two passages from the book Eliot wrote at the time, The Idea of a Christian Society. The first is short and memorable, the second is more demanding. First, many of you will know this quotation. If you will not have God, and he is a jealous God, you should pay your respect to Hitler or Stalin. If you will not have God, and he is a jealous God, you should pay your respect to Hitler or Stalin. Second, a Christian society only becomes acceptable after you have fairly examined the alternatives. We might, of course, merely sink into an apathetic decline without faith and therefore without faith in ourselves, without a philosophy of life, either Christian or pagan and without art. Or we might get a totalitarian democracy, excuse me, a totalitarian democracy, different but having much in common with other pagan societies because we shall have changed step by step in order to keep pace with them. A state of affairs in which we shall have regimentation and conformity without respect for the needs of the individual soul. The Puritanism of hygienic morality in the interest of efficiency. Uniformity of opinion through propaganda and art only encouraged when it flatters the official doctrines of the time. To those who can imagine and are therefore repelled by such a prospect, one can assert that the only possibility of control and balance, that the only hopeful course for society which would thrive and continue its creative activity in the arts of civilization is to become Christian. What must strike us as disturbingly potent in these statements is their relevance. The authoritarian left and the authoritarian right remain respectively the heirs of Stalin and the heirs of Hitler. These political adversaries embody the hard secular alternatives to a Christian society. Both are more than capable of achieving totalitarian democracy. Neither is capable of promoting good art. In the same work, the idea of a Christian society 
Eliot speaks of the debauching of the arts by political criteria. The verb debauch, as, as Trevor Merrill could tell us, the verb debauch comes from an old French word meaning to draw away from the workshop, from one's work or duty. You will recall Flannery O'Connor's warning about those for whom, quote, it is considered better to save the world than to save the work. The debauching of the arts by political criteria is no greater sin against the arts than the debauching of the arts by religious criteria. But it was politics and not religion that represented the greatest threat to human flourishing in 1938, and that most certainly remains the case in 2021. For the Eliot of 1938, the only viable alternative to Hitler and Stalin was for English society as a whole to embrace Christianity. That is where Eliot's situation differs keenly from our own. It is interesting that by 1938, he was focusing his energies on England. The idea of a Christian society was intended for an English audience. From Eliot's viewpoint, America was too vast and chaotic to be susceptible to intelligent persuasion. We can only hope that that is not the case. We must, after all, work with the resources available to us. If the radical middle is to hold, then the advocates of Christian humanism cannot spend their time laboring for the establishment of a Christian theocracy. In this respect, I stand respectfully apart from the Catholic integralists among us. They are, in effect, Catholic Erastians urging the union of religious authority and political power. It would seem to me that those who pursue such ends are not particularly interested in literature, either as educators or as artists. I grant that there are far worse alternatives before us than Catholic integralism, but it isn't what Eliot or I mean by a Christian society. Eliot was too invested in humanistic tolerance and the free exchange of ideas to support a fusion of politics and religion. Following Maritain, he wanted a pluralistic society that enlisted and supported the talents of Christians and non-Christians. For Eliot, a non-Christian was eligible to become the prime minister of a Christian England. This appeal to pluralism strikes me as the only way forward. Not too long ago, a functioning pluralism was considered desirable among most American intellectuals. Nowadays, what is popularly called cancel culture has weakened American pluralism by silencing intelligent dissent. But against this authoritarian threat, the fact that Christian humanism can flourish only in a pluralistic and voluntaristic spirit is not necessarily a weakness. I suspect that pluralists and humanists of all kinds would respect its entry into the public discourse, the entry of Christian humanism into the public discourse. It is preferable from any sane point of view to mob rule and dem democratic totalitarianism. So in terms of our guiding principles, Christian humanists desire a Christian society, but we accept that our means are cultural, not political, certainly not violent, certainly not intolerant, though we must always distinguish an intelligent tolerance from a prelude to anarchy. The most important teaching method for humanists is to teach by doing. Don't write an essay about great literature. Write a great essay about great literature. Newman, Chesterton, and Eliot practiced what they preached by writing with the wellspring of tradition in their veins. They achieved on the level of style the individuality that no society worth preserving can do without. The culture of Christian humanism is one where practice and theory join in the work of our best writers and artists. If we can continue to attract such individuals, Christian humanism will flourish and the radical middle will hold. Thank you.